0: In 1963, infamous and unattractive Madeline Murray O'Hare founded an activist organization called American Atheist. That organization now has more than 230 local affiliates and some 392,000 supporters. It has managed to become a significant societal force. It leases anti-religious billboards in heavily trafficked locations, and uses them around religious holidays. It files countless anti-religious lawsuits and publishes its own Atheist magazine. That organization's website's homepage reads, quote, "For more than 55 years that number should be updated for more than 55 years, this organization, American Atheist, has fought to protect the absolute." Notice, absolute separation of religion from government. And to elevate atheist and atheism in our nation's public and political discourse. Elevating atheist and atheism also means eliminating religion and eliminating religious opinion in our nation's public and political discourse. Ms. O'Hare was murdered in 1995, and I'm pretty sure she is now no longer an atheist. More and more, it seems judges, courts, and bureaucratic agencies are banning Christianity from an increasing number of government-sponsored arenas. Secular government wants to compartmentalize Christianity and restrict it to the church and not permit it to be exercised in the public square and in political discourse. The public is being told that The First Amendment to the United States Constitution includes a clause that calls for the absolute separation of church and state. It's interesting this phrase, separation of church and state, was mentioned in the former Soviet Union Constitution, but it is not found in the U.S. Constitution. Although, a recent poll said 67% of this nation believes it is part of the First Amendment and it isn't. In a recent interview, Prince Harry from the UK called the First Amendment bonkers, not understanding it is that, quote, bonkers First Amendment that permits him to criticize our government with impunity, something that wouldn't be permitted in some other countries. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. In addressing the subject of religion, this First Amendment was designed to do two fundamental things. Don't miss them. One, it ensured that the government did not establish a state religion. It ensured that the government did not establish a state religion. This first line of the First Amendment is called the Establishment Clause. It reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The First Amendment was added to the Constitution not to separate government and government entities from religion, but to protect us from the establishment of a state religion. At the time the First Amendment was added to the Constitution, five of the first states had started to establish state religions. And the First Amendment was necessary to put a stop to that practice. Let me explain the origin of that phrase. This phrase, the separation of church and state, was actually taken from a letter dated January 1, 1802. A letter from Thomas Jefferson a letter from Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut. The reason for that letter was that some Baptist clergymen in Connecticut, in Danbury, heard a rumor that another denomination called the Congregationalist wanted to be recognized as the recognized religion of the United States. Those Baptist ministers are extremely concerned that this rumor might be true. Because their forefathers had immigrated to this country in order to have religious freedom and not be subjected to religious persecution from a state-established church. None of them wanted the Congregationalist or any other denomination, including their own, to become the state-recognized church. In that letter, Jefferson said this. This is just a part of that correspondence. American people which declared that their legislature should, and he recites the First Amendment, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Secular progressives, those on the left, have extracted from that letter that phrase building a wall of separation between church and state and have misused it to misrepresent Jefferson and courts, academia, and progressive politicians continue to misrepresent Jefferson's comments because this wall of separation President Jefferson cited was intended to assure those Danbury Baptist that the United States government was committed to not not establishing a state religion that was the historical context of Jefferson's comments the second thing the First Amendment did it ensured that the government does not interfere with the free practice or exercise of religion the free practice or exercise of religion. Remember the exact wording is or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means government prohibiting and banishing the Christian religion from the public arena and political discourse is not constitutional and is a contradiction to the original intention of the founding fathers. But that is an increasing societal problem as we have seen during this recent pandemic. These two things represent the true intent of the First Amendment clause. But historical revisionists, social liberals, secular progressives assign that statement a more restrictive interpretation and insist that separation of church and state means barring God from all things government. That's the reason another organization called Americans United for separation of church and state, has urged the U.S. Senate not to appoint another Senate chaplain. The just retired executive director of this group, he served them more than 25 years, and through his massive media blitz throughout that time period, he made them more and more respectable. His name is Reverend Barry Lynn. He argued that Quote, the U.S. government is running massive deficits. That's true. We now have a $3 trillion deficit. The U.S. government is running massive deficits and should not be spending our money on a Senate chaplain's salary. <laughs> oh, wow. That is such a straw man argument. The Senate chaplain's annual income is just over $100. The current Senate chaplain is Barry Black, a retired Navy Rear Admiral. He is a Seventh-day Adventist, as is Dr. Ben Carson. He opens each Senate session in prayer. And in addition, his responsibilities include counseling and distributing spiritual assistance to all U.S. senators, their families, and staffs. A total of more than 6,000 people. I believe that is a reasonable compensation for those extensive shepherding responsibilities. So compare his salary, just more than $160,000, to the U.S. national debt that is now $28.4 trillion trillion and counting eliminating the senate chaplains salary would have zero net effect on the current obscene deficit and debt the position of senate chaplain has existed since 1789 so it is a long-standing tradition that this liberal organization wants to discontinue it's interesting former director Barry Lynn from Americans United for separation of church and state spent seven years as an attorney for the radical ACLU not a surprise there And he was ordained through the United Church of Christ denomination. The United Church of Christ might sound familiar because the infamous and controversial Reverend Jeremiah Wright pastored the largest congregation in that denomination until his retirement. That particular denomination is one of the most liberal mainline denominations in existence. Reverend Lynn constantly refers to himself as a Christian. I have serious doubts about that. If he's a Christian, he's an embarrassment to Christianity because he's the only christian minister i'm aware of that wants god out of stuff that organization has a mission statement that reads americans united for separation of church and state is a nonpartisan okay that's that's just a joke nonpartisan educational and advocacy organization dedicated to advancing the separation of religion and government as the only way to ensure freedom of religion, including the right to believe or not believe for all. That phrase, to ensure religious freedom, uh, is deceitful wording. Because the religious freedom that organization has in mind is not freedom of religion, but total freedom from religion. And that form of freedom just contributes to the increasing secularization of society. Remember Psalm 9, verse 17 reads, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations, including this nation, all the nations that forget God. It is important to understand that some authoritative source has to be used as the reference point for all enacted laws and statutes that authoritative source is either God or man. So the originators of this nation decided that their source, their authoritative source was to be God and His laws. And that is apparent through reading this nation's historical records. I understand two professors Donald Lutz and Charles Hyman reviewed an estimated 15,000 items containing explicit political content printed between 1760 1760, and 805. And from those items, they identified 3,154 references to other printed sources. The source that was quoted most often, exactly 34% of the time, was the Bible. And these were direct quotations from Scripture. In addition to that, Sixty percent of the other quotations came from men that used the Bible to formulate their conclusions, even though their comments were not direct verbatim quotations from the Bible. Putting that all together, that means that 94% of all the quotations evaluated from these founding fathers originated from Scripture. And those men incorporated those biblical concepts into the government of the United States. One example was from Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord, this is Yahweh, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the Judeo-Christian God we serve. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he, the Lord, will save us. The founding fathers read that verse, and from it created three major branches of government. Judicial from Judge, Legislative from Lawgiver, and Executive from King. Those men felt the powers of government should be separated in order to create a sense of checks and balances. For instance, the President has power to execute law, but not make law. And the Congress has the power to create law, but not to judge legal cases. And the current judiciary needs to be reminded that their function is to interpret the law and not act as political activists. The basic power principle of separating the powers came from Scripture itself in order to protect the citizens of this nation from government tyranny. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States and he said this, The law given from Sinai meaning that divine law Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, and that legal code he received included the Ten Commandments. That Mosaic law, Adam said, was a civil and municipal as well as a moral and religious code. Laws essential to the existence of men in society, and most of which have been enacted by every nation which ever professed any code of laws. Basically, President Adams said biblical laws are fundamental to a free and open society. But secular activists that are against the exhibition of religious comment have sued in order to have God removed from public assemblies and locations. It is nonsensical that neo-Nazis and KKK members can hide behind the First Amendment that freedom of speech clause to march in public and even secure police protection and in doing that push for the extermination of Jewish people and the subjection of people of color and then those same courts can use that same first amendment to prevent our children from praying in public schools people that is nonsense some time ago I read about a small Texas school that had been hit by a tornado. There was a tornado warning given, and they were made aware of it. And so in order to protect themselves, teachers and students were herded into the school gym where they prayed, desperately prayed to be spared. God answered that prayer. God did spare them as the school was entirely destroyed except for that gym. But since Congress and the courts have ruled that voluntary audible public prayer is unconstitutional, that principal and his staff were reprimanded for praying with the children during that crisis. I can guarantee that our founding fathers did not have in mind eliminating religion from public schools. As one middle school student said, as long as there are tests in public school, there is going to be prayer in public school. Amen? The First Amendment was not added to our Constitution to protect our children from the Christian religion. The First Amendment was to protect the Christian religion from government control because the objective was to have a free church in a free state. Let me repeat that this is a misunderstanding of the original intent of the First Amendment and a complete misrepresentation of President Jefferson's words. One author said this, The founding Fathers did not include the First Amendment to disallow Christianity from influencing state-established institution. On the contrary, the framers of this nation expected this nation to be on the whole Christian in nature and our government was to reflect that bias. Former President Obama, as both a senator and then a presidential candidate said, that we were not we were not a Christian nation on a trip to Turkey he announced to his audience that quote Americans do not consider themselves a Christian nation in Egypt he announced quote America was one of the largest Muslim countries in the world didn't know that did you he made that statement although the latest statistics show that just 1.4% of this nation is Muslim and the US Muslim population represents just 39th of all Muslim nations the president was mistaken because this nation has never never ever been a Muslim country actually Sharia Islamic Sharia law, is a complete contradiction to the United States Constitution on February 29 1892 the United States Supreme Court the highest court announced that the historical record of America overwhelmingly demonstrated that the United States quote is a Christian nation listen to Supreme Court Justice David Brewer he said in what sense can America be called a Christian nation not in the sense that Christianity is the established religion or that the people are in any manner compelled to support it. He then cites the First Amendment. Neither is it Christian in the sense that all its citizens are either in fact or in name Christians. On the contrary, all religions have free scope inside our borders. Numbers of our people profess other religions, and many reject all religions. Nor is it Christian in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding public office or otherwise engaging in public service or essential to recognition either politically or socially. In fact, the government as a legal organization is independent of all religions. Nevertheless, we constantly speak of this republic as a Christian nation. In fact, it is the leading Christian nation of the world. People, that was more than a century ago. And an argument could be made that the United States is now a post-Christian nation. I believe we are a post-Christian nation. But we were once considered a Christian nation because Christianity assisted in the formation of this nation and completely shaped its development. And that is a historical fact. The Declaration, the authors of the Declaration of Independence used five separate references to God in that historic document because those men shared a common Christian bias. 39 men signed the Constitution and most of them were professing Christians and not just deists, as secularists often claim. That original Christian bias is also evident in the fact the first act... Don't miss this. The first actual act of the United States Congress was to authorize the printing of 20,000 Bibles to be distributed among the Native American Indians. Don't tell me this nation doesn't have extensive Christian roots because it absolutely does. John Witherspoon was a Christian minister and professor and president of New Jersey College which after 1896 be referred to as Princeton University John Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration of Independence the only clergyman to do that and although he did not attend the Constitutional Convention he still influenced that body because as a professor he had taught at least nine some argue 12 at least nine he had taught in his classes nine of the 55 original delegates to that convention John Witherspoon said this, God grant that in America true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable. True religion and civil liberty may be inseparable and that unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to the support and establishment of both. Most people in this room have no clue that the United States Capitol was once used as a church building where Sunday worship services were conducted. Church services were held there before Congress actually started meeting there. And that practice continued until well after the Civil War and Reconstruction. Both presidents and members of Congress attended those services and it was often said, often overcrowded. So much for the absolute separation of church and state. The framers of the Constitution understood what would happen if the government established a state church as England had done. The state church in England prohibited worship in private homes. No other churches were permitted to exist other than the established church. People were forced to attend the state-sponsored church and forced to do things contrary to their consciences and failure to comply with those mandates resulted in imprisonment and torture. No one wanted that situation to exist in the United States, so the First Amendment was added to the Constitution to see that it didn't. Part of the problem is this, secular progressives, those on the left, insist that moral values, traditional moral values, and religion are synonymous that moral values and religion are one and the same. Their reasoning is that if Christians are promoting traditional moral values, such as traditional marriage, meaning marriage between one man and one woman, um, if we are promoting traditional marriage, then we are in effect promoting the Christian religion. And according to them, that is a blatant violation of the separation doctrine. One example, if we encourage sexual abstinence curriculum in public schools, then we are accused of imposing Christian moral values on that impressionable demographic, and that shouldn't be permitted. I might add, the public educational system teaches secular humanism. Probably most people don't know in 1961 the United States Supreme Court classified humanism as a religion so the question is why is the religion of humanism being taught in public schools and then the Christian religion is prohibited. Another example if Christians promote legislation that puts more restrictions on the distribution of pornographic materials then according to secularists we are imposing our religious moral values onto society The ACLU, um, the Anti-Christian Liberties Union, is still upset at the Supreme Court ruling from 2003 that obligated some 16,536 public libraries to use software to filter out pornographic material on the internet so as to protect children in those libraries from porn sites this was upsetting to them the law that the court upheld is called the Children's Internet Protection Act and secular opponents of that decision argue that it represents censorship of First Amendment rights and get this quote it is the inevitable result of Christian moral prejudice imposed onto the Supreme Court trust me uh, we have some good justices But the United States Supreme Court is not now even remotely close to being a Christian prejudice court. One of the supposed arguments, I might add, that that was all introduction. That was just introduction. Now here comes the sermon, all right? (laughs) One of the supposed biblical arguments used to reinforce this doctrine of absolute separation is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew 22. It's interesting to me that Social and theological liberals who don't actually believe the Bible to be authentic, sacred scripture then use the Bible if in doing that they feel it might help them build a stronger case for the separation argument. Remember, separationism is the doctrine that church and state are to remain completely separate. Matthew 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, entangle Jesus in his talk. Pharisees were a strict sect of arrogant, pompous, self-righteous Jewish men who were envious of Jesus and his success. These Pharisees were deceitful tricksters and wanted to entrap Jesus into making a subversive statement against the Roman government. If he were to do that, then he could be arrested and executed as an insurrectionist. Verse 16, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Let me set this up. If one of the Pharisees had approached Jesus and had asked this question, then their motive would have been suspect because it was a Pharisee. So the Pharisees sent some of their followers to question Jesus, hoping that Jesus would be deceived into thinking that these men were just a sincere group of admirers who just wanted his advice about a question. So this is a complete setup. Notice that these representatives from the Pharisees had some Herodians join them. The Herodians were not a religious sect, as were the Pharisees. The Herodians were a political party and were extremely pro Rome. It's interesting that the Pharisees and Herodians didn't cooperate often, were not friends, because they didn't agree on the Roman government. But the two groups did agree to cooperate together against Jesus. He was considered the common enemy. Verse 16 continues These men asked Jesus this trick question, saying, Teacher, We know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Don't misunderstand that second part. That last statement, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. That just meant Jesus was impartial. Those pharisaical puppets that had been sent to Jesus started flattering Jesus to get him to entrap himself in this question. It has been said that one of the highest form of praise is to ask someone's advice on an important issue because it means that we value that person's opinion. But these men had a different motive. Their idea was to attempt attempt to inflate Jesus' ego. Through presenting him this question, and then in that inflated state of egotism, hopefully cause him to blurt out an unprepared answer and entrap himself. And that technique might be extremely effective on some people, but it wasn't going to work on Jesus. Verse 17, this group approached Jesus and said, Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember the Pharisees were anti-Rome, so the Pharisees were against taxation to Rome. The Herodians were pro-Rome and so favored Roman taxation. That's the reason these two groups used this controversial issue of taxation as an attempt to entrap Jesus. Because in answering this question, The thinking was that Jesus was certain to get into trouble with one group or the other. So the question was, All right, Jesus, tell us. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do we pay our taxes to the Roman government or not? The tax that is referred to here, and this is important, was the poll tax, P-O-L-L, poll tax. It was an annual tax based on an annual census Rome was known for its extensive and excessive taxation although this poll tax was not the most extent expensive tax, it wasn't the most expensive but it was the particular tax the Jewish people hated the most the Jewish people hated the poll tax for two reasons first because it implied that each person that was counted in the census Remember, it was a tax based on the census. Each person counted that census belonged to Caesar. And that, the Jewish people resented that because they thought of themselves as belonging to God and not Caesar. And I get that. Second, the tax was an annual fee of a particular coin called a denarius. A denarius was a silver coin equal to a day's wage for a Roman soldier. The Jewish people considered the denarius a blasphemous coin. Why was that? The Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar issued the particular denarius used at the time of Jesus. One side of the coin had the face of Tiberius Caesar engraved on it and the other side of that coin pictured Tiberius Caesar sitting on a throne in priestly robes. The Jewish people considered those images of Caesar on that coin to be idolatrous and in contradiction to the second commandment. Remember the second commandment was a band against any image that might be considered idolatrous. It wasn't a coincidence that the Pharisees instructed these disciples to create a question about the poll tax. Because that particular tax required that particular coin called a denarius. So no matter which side Jesus decided on, in answering that question, he would create problems for himself. Or, that was the thinking. If Jesus opposed this tax, he said, no, you don't have to pay that, then the Roman government would be on his case. And if he agreed to this tax, then he would alienate himself from the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people hated Roman taxation. And the Jewish people were his target audience. So he didn't want to risk alienation. If he said this tax was unfair and ought not to be paid to a pagan Caesar, then these Herodians would have reported that response to Rome and the Roman authorities would have investigated that and could have arrested him and executed him as an insurrectionist. If though Jesus said that the Jewish people did owe this poll tax to the Roman government, then the Jewish multitudes would be upset and desert him. And if he was deserted, then the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, could have him executed without any interference and protest from the Jewish population. So Jesus was between the proverbial rock and a hard place. But this is Jesus. He was so on to this. Notice verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, meaning their evil motivation, and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Jesus was able to see right through this deceitful scheme. He understood that the real purpose of this question was to entrap him. It was all a setup. And These men were insincere hypocrites and on that basis alone Jesus could have refused to answer them. But he also knew that the other people standing around him would not understand if he didn't respond to this question so he answered them. Verse 19 Jesus said, Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Verse 20 And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Verse 21 they said to him, Caesar's. Meaning, who's on this coin? Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. And he, Jesus, said to them, this is his response to that question, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. In ancient societies, each ruler issued his own coinage and put his image on it. Remember we said earlier that this coin had Tiberius Caesar's image on it. So this coin essentially belonged to Caesar. The question was, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus had a unique and creative response to this question because he said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. In that one statement, Jesus defined our dual obligation to both human government and God. I might add, his answer was extremely effective because verse 22 reads that when they, this group that had come to entrap him, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. There was no rebuttal. The first question is, what things are Caesar's? Remember, the textual context is taxation. The question was specifically about taxation. So the answer to that question is taxes. Taxes are Caesar's. Caesar, don't forget, represents human government. And as such, Caesar, or government, has the right to assess and collect taxes. I still remember the time our oldest son received his first paycheck as an employee of Taco Bell. Drew was 15 at the time and he was super excited that he was going to be paid four dollars and fifty cents an hour. That was huge money to him. And in his uninformed mind he had it all figured out as to what his first paycheck was going to be. So I picked him up from Taco Bell he wasn't able to drive legally at that time, he's just 15, and he got in the car and he, he opened up the envelope, took out his pay stub and went ballistic, just ballistic. He was literally screaming in the car. What is all this stuff they took out of my check? I said, son those are taxes. Just get used to them because it only gets worse. <laughs> taxes are so outrageous It's almost difficult to imagine that one of the reasons this nation was founded was in order to avoid unfair taxation. Someone said income tax forms should probably be printed on Kleenex because more often than not we have to pay through the nose. That's probably true. In his Beatitudes, Jesus said, The meek shall inherit the earth. The problem is when the time comes for the meek to inherit the earth, the capital gains tax is going to be so high they aren't going to want it. Okay, I'm jesting. But we do have a biblical obligation to pay our taxes. Even though Congress has a long-standing reputation for misusing our tax monies, we are still to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Although I cannot find a single verse in Scripture that states we have to like it, and for the record, I don't. It is said a representative from the Roman Empire visited the province of Palestine not long after the time of Jesus and he reported to the emperor that people there that called themselves Christians were characterized by two things. They sang songs and they paid their taxes. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. The second question from this statement and what things are God's? What things are God's? The answer is absolute reverence, veneration, homage, obedience, and worship. Worship. Taxes belong to Caesar, and worship belongs to God. That means the things that belong to God do not belong to Caesar and should not be offered to him. That was actually a historical reference to ancient emperor worship. According to historians, the ancient Roman emperors would set up a bust of themselves, meaning, you know, a piece of, you know, pottery or stone made of their head from like the neck up. They would make this bust of themselves and then demand that people burn incense before that image of Caesar and worship Caesar as God. Jesus said that worship should be offered to God and should never be offered to someone else. Let's reread this statement from verse 21. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Social liberals and constitutional separationists latch on to that phrase and insist, "See, Jesus made a hard distinction between Caesar and God." So that in effect Jesus was in endorsing a definite and absolute separation between government and religion, and according to them, religion should have no public role outside of the church, and religion cannot impose its belief onto tradition or legislation that might affect the general public. Some examples: there shouldn't be, according to these people, shouldn't be a national holiday called Thanksgiving. The motto in God we trust should be removed from our coins. Certain patriotic songs cannot be sung at public celebrations such as America the Beautiful and God Bless America. And to be technical, the fourth verse of the national anthem cannot be sung either because it mentions God as the power that hath made and preserved us as a nation and also includes the phrase in God is our trust. The phrase One nation under God should be removed from the Pledge of Allegiance. The presidential inaugural prayer should be discontinued. The inaugural oath should omit the phrase, So help me God. And that same phrase, so help me God, should be also admitted from people being sworn to testify in public court cases. Christmas carols should not be permitted in public schools. Nativity scenes are not should no longer be permitted on state-owned property. And the word holidays should be substituted for Christmas. Biblical speech from the pulpit that condemns the LGBTQ movement and condemns critical race theory and condemns Marxist ideologies, that is considered hate speech and should be banned. Prayers cannot be said at... Public graduation ceremonies. Churches should lose their tax-exempt status. And on and on and on and infinitum. The problem is this doctrine of extreme separation is extrapolated from a misunderstanding of this statement Jesus just made, where he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Jesus was just emphasizing that although we owe taxes to Caesar, taxes to government, we do not owe homage, veneration, reverence, worship, and unquestioned, unreserved obedience to government as we would to God. Those things belong exclusively to God. We do not compromise our convictions as a Christian in order to submit to some government mandate. We submit to government until government requires us to do something that would cause us To act in disobedience to God. And then at that point, we submit to the higher authority, and that is God and God alone. Jesus was not separating public life from religion and suggesting that religious influence is to be limited to inside the church and that it is to have no effect on other parts of human society. That was not his intent. This excuse of a pandemic shutdown was a coordinated effort on the part of government to limit our religious liberties. And to drastically limit our free exercise of religion was a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment. I understand some courts didn't recognize that. But it was. Once we were made aware of the seriousness of this coronavirus, we exercised an abundance of caution None of us wanted to endanger our congregation, so we canceled all in-person services for more than two months, and it was difficult, extremely difficult. We returned to conducting public worship services once we were convinced COVID was not a viable threat to our congregation other than to those most vulnerable to this disease, and we strongly encouraged those congregants' congregants that were more susceptible to the virus to please, please remain at home and to attend services or not attend services we left up to the discretion of the individual but we wanted our people to have an option something that government had denied us and then during the surge of infections in December we agreed to another precautionary measure and we closed a second time once we felt it was safe to return we reopened and we have remained open we have remained open in defiance of the governor's edict that was in effect until recent months an edict that in a practical sense said casinos liquor stores and cannabis shops were essential but churches were not we were fortunate there were no legal consequences as there have been other places Had there been fines assessed against us, we would still have met. Had there been arrests made, meaning had I been arrested, we would still have met. Had this building been padlocked shut so we couldn't have access to it, we would still have met. We would have met in secret because we dare not. We dare not surrender our souls to a government because that homage and that worship and that obedience and that commitment belongs to God and God alone. Christians can agree to Thomas Jefferson's original intent of the separation of church and state. But not this extreme, radical and absolute separation of God from government. In closing, let me add this warning, and listen carefully. The nation and government, the nation and government that doesn't acknowledge itself to be under God is a nation and government that believes it is itself God. And then in acting as God, it positions itself under the judgment of God. And people, that is not where we want to be. I want our worship team to quietly come to the platform. We did this the first services we, after we reopened. And I feel it is appropriate to do again. Irving Berlin was a first generation European Jewish immigrant. He became a famous composer and lyricist and is said to be this nation's greatest songwriter. Throughout his six decade long career he authored 1500 plus songs. Songs such as White Christmas. Songs such as There's No Business Like Show Business. He wrote musical scores for 19 Broadway shows and 18 Hollywood movies. But during his stint in the army He wrote his most famous song in 1918 and then for some reason after composing that piece he put it on the shelf, just ignored it. And then in 1938, one decade after, he got it out again, made some minor revisions to it and gave it to a soloist named Kate Smith to sing on the radio. This song only has 40 words but it has been sung an incalculable number of times and some of those times have been strategic and extraordinarily patriotic. There is an introduction to this song that is almost never sung and it reads, while the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in solemn prayer. This song is, in part, essentially a prayer. And the rest should sound familiar. Please stand to your feet, everyone, and join us as we sing, God Bless America.